thankful for the opportunity to be with you here. This is the second time I've had opportunity to visit with you. Certainly appreciate the kind words of your pastor concerning my age. I don't consider myself that much older than Brother Jamie, but uh, <laughs> he will arrive at that point someday. And uh, certainly was fed by the message of Elder Guest. What's encouraging about a convicting message is that James, in a few chapters later, in chapter 4, says, Draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto thee. And so it's the convicting message that's the means of drawing us close to the glorious God. And when we view it that way, then we can thank God for a message that convicts us to get us closer to God, which is the very goal of salvation, isn't it? The goal of salvation is God-likeness and to be with God forever. And so we have a foretaste of that today. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 96. I'll begin reading in verse 7. Psalm 96, verse 7. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. I'd like to take that middle phrase in verse 9 as our text, the beauty of holiness. The beauty of holiness. What is the holiness of God? Holiness can be defined in two ways. There's two facets to God's holiness. First of all, it can be defined by looking at its counterpart. If you looked up the word profane or unholy in the Bible, it would be defined to treat as common. And therefore, the holiness of God is that he is uncommon. He is separate. He is apart. He is not like anything that you've ever known or ever witnessed or ever experienced in your life. He is transcendent, as some men use the word to explain it. He is infinitely above that which he created. Secondly, God's holiness may be defined as his purity, which may be defined as God's love for righteousness and his hatred for iniquity. Psalm 11 says, The righteous, love, uh, the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. And Psalm 5 says, He hateth all the workers of iniquity. God loves that which is righteous. But the connection between God's uncommonness and his purity is that he loves that. He loves those, and he loves his set-apartness. That's how they connect together. And God hates those and hates everything that is counter to his uncommonness. Let me illustrate in John chapter 7 where we find the definition of righteousness. Purity is God's love for righteousness. The righteous Lord loveth righteousness. But what is that? What does it mean for God to love righteousness? Jesus defines it in John 7, verse 18. He says, He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. But he that seeketh the glory of him that sent him, the same is true, and in him is no unrighteousness. The reason that Jesus was righteous and is righteous was because he's God, but because he was a seeker of God's glory. He says, that's not unrighteous. The person that seeks God's glory is not unrighteous. Now let's apply that to God. When God seeks the glory of God, he's not unrighteous. But he is righteous. So God's purity may be defined as his love for seeking his glory and his hatred for everything that is counter to it. And his glory is his holiness, which is his set-apartness. It's what makes him distinctly above everything that he has created. Even that which we call uncommon in our world, such as a talented athlete, the more uncommon, the more their value increases. 
the more rare an object, the more its value increases. But regardless of how rare, how valuable of any created substance, it always has commonality with that which is alike. For example, the most talented athlete that has ever lived and that made the biggest sum of money has this in common with you. He goes to sleep. He has to eat. He gets tired. He bleeds. He dies. He has to breathe. So there's a commonality. Even the Hope Diamond itself, which is far above every other diamond, has this common attribute with every other diamond. It's created of the same substance. It's made. Whatever the substance is, it has commonality. But God has no rival. He's uncommon. And the word uncommon seems to be a difficult word to express it, but that's really the best word, isn't it? There is nothing quite like him. God values his holiness. It is the focal point of his person. Every attribute and character of God is defined by holy. Even his wrath is holy, his grace is holy, his mercy is holy, his goodness is holy, because every part of his nature is infinitely set apart than anything that could even come close to comparison. By the way, nothing can. Listen to how God highlights his holiness in Psalm 89. Once I have sworn... Now, when someone swears... They're going to pick the most valuable object to swear by. Have you ever heard someone swear by their mother's grave? What are they doing? They're swearing by that which is valuable. They're putting their mother's grave, which is very, not the grave, but the mother, is close to them. It's valuable to them, as your own mother is. Or we swear by a Bible in the court of law. Why do we do that? We are acknowledging the value of the Word of God, as Elder Guest preached. What is God going to swear by? When he looks over his creation, when he looks over the universe, what is he going to pick out and swear by it? Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie unto David. He swears by his holiness. He picks that part of himself that he most highly values, which scans his complete name and says, this is it. This is my beauty. It's my set-apartness from everything that I have created. What about Jesus Christ in that Messianic Psalm, Psalm 22? where he says and asks the question, O God, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from me? You ever answered that question? You may say, well, it was because of my sin. That's correct. It's because of our sin that was put on the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's the secondary. What's the primary? Verse 3. But thou art holy. God so values the holiness of his name, he's willing when his son becomes sin for us to forsake him demonstrating his love for righteousness. And what about Hebrews chapter 3 concerning the resurrection of Christ or being seated at the right hand of God? What's the reason? Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, has what? Anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Why? Because Jesus so honored the holiness of God, he loved it infinitely. Beloved, the only one that could atone for your sins is that someone could love righteousness with the same degree and intensity that God himself does. Every waking moment, every dream, every thought, every action must honor the righteousness, the holiness of God as God himself would. And he must hate iniquity and that which opposes God with the same intensity that God does. Does that show you how impossible it is to atone for sins yourself? It's the Lamb of God that loved righteousness, hated iniquity, so God has anointed him showing the value of his holiness with the oil of gladness above his fellows. 
the holiness of God. I want to consider it in two ways. There are many ways you may discover in the Bible. We'll look at two tonight. God highlights His holiness as the Creator God. Look at Isaiah 40. God is going to call attention when speaking to the Israelites some many years before their captivity and before their release. God is preparing ahead of time to comfort His people by giving them the message they need far in advance of when they need it, as God often works providentially. So in Isaiah 40, God is speaking to Isaiah ahead of time, and he's going to compare himself to the no gods, the idols of the Babylonians. And he says this in verse 25, To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? You will find this expression over and over in the book of Isaiah. When you see it, mark it down. This is God calling attention to his holiness by asking the question, Who on earth will you compare me to? Now, obviously, the answer is what? No one. My children used to ask me, how, how do you explain this trinity? I say, well, it's, it's, you know, I just start to compare it to things. Kind of like when people eat some exotic food and they say it tastes like chicken. Always wonder why they don't just eat chicken. But the fact is, when we try to explain God and compare him to something, I stop doing it. I said, children, the Bible says, who can compare anything to God? So I said, I can't do it. There's no comparison. This is just what the Bible declares, and it's fact. What will you compare to God, or what will you liken to the Holy One and here's the answer in verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things? When God is going to draw attention to his holiness, his set-apartness, his uniqueness, he says, look at the stars. Look up on high, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Look at the stars. Look at creation. I was looking at stars one time, and so I thought in a book about science, and I opened the page up, and it looked like uh, thousands of stars. And I commented, what an amazing thing, a star. And I began to read the caption. It said they were all galaxies. Now, you recognize our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, has got billions of stars in it. And each little dot on the picture was a galaxy with billions of stars. And they said there's probably thousands and thousands undiscovered. When God tells you to look up to the heavens, he's calling attention to his holiness and he wants you to worship him in the beauty of holiness. It's his set-apartness. It's the fact that there's nothing like him. When we look at creation, beloved, we're to remember and recognize the holiness of God. Young people, this will transform your education. You see, I tell people where the church I pastor that education is not primarily for occupation. Education is not for occupation, it's for exaltation. Remember a man one time speaking about education asked me, said, why do you educate your children? I said, well, get a job, right? said that to myself. He said, if you said to get a job, that's wrong. I was like, what? I thought that's why you educate yourself. Why people get educated was to get a job. He said, no, you educate children to teach them about God. Isn't that what God declares himself over and over in the Bible? God wants you to teach your children about his holiness. Psalm 78, he says... He gave the law, he gave the testimony in Israel, the testimony to Jacob and Israel. For what purpose? That the parents may teach their children that they may set their hope in God. Now, sometimes we want to talk about how we can't affect the heart and can't give the new birth, and all that is true. You know, sometimes we use that as an excuse. God never said do anything to the heart. He said you teach them. Leave that to God. 
educate them for the exaltation of God. Whether they dig ditches, whether they have a, a job that is not considered good in the eyes of the world, if you have trained them and told them about God and leave the rest to God, God will honor His Word. Now, I'm not telling you about any guarantees, but I'm telling you about the commands of Scripture, as Elder Guest has told us, honoring the Word of God and what it says. What about Deuteronomy chapter 6? When God is going to tell the parents to teach your children in the way as you rise up, as you sit down at the table, you know what he says before that? He says, Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and body, and that these things which I command you shall be in your heart. It's kind of hard to teach someone something that's not in your own heart. Children can pick up on that quickly, can't they? But when you are excited and love the holiness of God, and you can teach about the stars, not just as some scientific fact that's boring, but this is who God is, this is His holiness, who could create like this God? The answer is no one. We've got to rethink education. Whether it's homeschooling, public school, parochial school, Christian school, private school, it doesn't matter. Parents, we are to educate for exaltation. And the word educate in the Latin just means to lead along. We're leading them along, pointing them to the beauty of God and His holiness. By looking at creation and all that He's created and learning all about God in science, all about God in history, all about God in math. Now the skeptical say, how do you find God in math? You look at Genesis chapter 1. What's the first few things that God did? He divided, He added, and He multiplied. He's there. He's in it. That'll transform your education to something about God's holiness. Look upon high, he says, and see the number that you can't even tell. I know them all by name. That talks about a personal God that looks over his creation. And none of them faileth without God. You ever wonder why those things keep burning? Because of God. That's why. Holiness of God. What about in Job chapter 5? When Job is going to talk about Something unsearchable and full of wonders about God. He says, consider the rain. That's something God created. How could we call attention to God's holiness, His uniqueness in rain? He says, He giveth the rain and He bring waters upon the field. You farmers here know a lot about rain. You pray for it. You ask God for it. God sends the rain. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He's certainly providentially giving rain. But when we look at the means that He uses, the cycle, the rain cycle... We can see something about the holiness of God that sets Him apart from all created things. It says in that verse, which doeth great things, verse 9 of Job 5, and unsearchable, marvelous things without number, who giveth rain upon the earth. Now just consider the rain cycle. Now I didn't get these numbers. I used them from another man, but I assume he's accurate. Farmers, if one inch of rain fell on one square mile that would be 27.8 million cubic feet of water, actually over that, which would be 206 million gallons of water, which would be over 1.6 billion pounds of water. One inch, one square mile. Well, where does the water come from? If he's going to send it on the field, how does it get there? Sometimes it travels two and 300 miles in those places across the seas, where the water is scarce, it goes from like the Mediterranean Sea or various oceans and it travels two or three hundred miles and drops out of the sky. How does it do that? It's evaporation. It's got to evaporate. Now that's an amazing thing. It's where the water stops being watered, becomes a vapor and travels up. And then it lodges in the clouds, mysteriously, travels along until the water gets real heavy again. 
and the particles start to bump together. Your children probably studied this in school. The rain particles collect dust, and they bump together, they get larger until it gets heavy, and then at 1.6 billion pounds of water drop on the field. But wait a minute, look out, cows. <laughs> and wheat, I mean, somebody's going to die if a billion pounds of water drops on the field. But you see, God sends it down in droplets to give the tender grass the nourishment. What does God do to call attention to His holiness? He says, look upon high. Look at the creation. Look at what I've created. It calls attention to my holiness. When you look at God's creation, when you look at the things around you, do they become common or profane? Or do you still treat them as uncommon because of who sends it, who does it, who gives it? The holy God. You know, that's our very nature of depravity is that we treat God as uncommon. Romans chapter 1 tells us that. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. We've defined unrighteousness already. Jesus has. Don't seek the glory of God. Paul agrees with that in Romans chapter 3 where he says, There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. What is unrighteousness? No seeking after God. That's depravity. Not to seek God is depravity. That's unrighteousness. That's us by nature. They hold the truth in unrighteousness. They first possess it and then they suppress it. They possess the truth, something about God, His holiness, some limited part about God. Then they suppress it if you read the whole first chapter of Romans. Because that which may be known of God, because He manifests it in them, God has showed it unto them. What may be known of God, God has manifested in man, and he showed it to man. For the invisible things of him, from the creation of the world, there's the creation of God, that's what sets him apart as a holy God. For the invisible things of him, from the creation of the world, are clearly seen. Something invisible clearly seen. How? Even his eternal power and Godhead. Did you know that every single human being that comes into the world can know something about God's power and His Godhead. Isn't that part of His holiness, His rarity, His uncommonness, His power? Just look at the trees, look at the rain cycles, look at the universe, look at the planets and the galaxies, and you see something of the power of God. And His Godhead, the fact that He's a Trinitarian God, look at the things that are in threes that God created, the three phases, past, uh, present, future, three types of life. Light, three types of blood cells, and the list goes on. God says even natural man can know something about my uncommonness just by looking at creation. Again, God is highlighting his holiness in creation. He says, because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, but became foolish, vain in their imaginations, were not thankful, professing themselves to be wise. And what did they do? Changed the glory of the uncorruptible God. What does it mean to un be uncorruptible? Without mixture, without additives, without contaminants, it means pure. The holy God. They changed the glory of God and His holiness, what could be known about God, into the image of corruptible, impure, unrighteous, full of iniquity, man, four-footed beast, birds, so forth. That's what we've all done by nature. Man looks at the creation, he either says, big deal, just a common thing, rains every day. Or either says, some amoeba, amoeba crawled out of the primordial slime and then it developed into something else and it became a man after an ape. 
what are they doing? Treating God as common, bringing the glorious God and his holiness down to the level of a four-footed beast, creeping thing, which were the Roman gods of that day. And then he says, they changed the truth of God into a lie. What's the truth about God? That he is holy, glorious. They changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is God-blessed forever. Calling attention to what? His holiness. We, by nature, have all exchanged God's holiness for the mundane and for the common. Sisters, it would be like if you possessed the Hope Diamond, and when you got it to your home, you threw it in your jewelry box with all the rest of the trinkets and cubic zirconia and lesser value jewelry. That's it, isn't it? That's what sin is all about. It's not acknowledging and knowing and understanding this glorious God by which man is accountable because Paul says they're without excuse. We recognize how this takes place. The natural man knoweth not the things of God. For they are foolish in him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But yet he's accountable because he will always love darkness rather than the glorious purity of the light of God. That's why they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ when he came unto his own. God calls attention... To His holiness by saying, look at the stars, look at creation. We need to call attention to that, don't we? We need to remember as we walk through God's world, as we see the flowers, the beauty of it, His creation, and remember that God is unlike us. He's far above even the holy angels, Jesus calls them. Even those holy angels in Isaiah chapter 6 put wings over their face, wings over their feet, and with twain they did fly, showing that they are ashamed before God because they know that they cannot praise God to the degree that he deserves. They're ashamed of it. And their wings over their feet to show that they're created beings. And the holy angels cry, Holy, 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 the Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is full of what? His glory. That uncommonness of God. The fact that he's so far above all that he's created. That's worshiping him that way in this house. The beauty of holiness. Worship Him the beauty of holiness. Come into this house as a separate and apart thing. Not because of the wood. Not because of the carpet. Not because of the preacher. Because of God. You remember the holy vessels were holy. Because God, they were sanctified and set apart for God. They were different from all other vessels because they were apart for God. And God is highlighting His holiness. Secondly, the last thing, we'll only get two tonight. God highlights His holiness... Because that if there's nothing like God, and there's nothing to be compared to God, then there's nothing can satisfy your soul like God. Now that stands to reason, doesn't it? If there's nothing quite like God, and there's not, if He's far above everything, then there's nothing that can satisfy your soul than a holy God. Isaiah chapter 12. Again, if you study the book of Isaiah, you will see that this expression, who will you compare me to, is used more by Isaiah than any other writer in the entire Bible, at least in my studies of that phrase. And when God, again, is going to call attention to himself in comparison to the idols, which were no gods at all, in Isaiah 12, he's going to call attention to the fact that he satisfies his people. Verse 1 of Isaiah 12. And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee, though thou wast angry with me. Thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and be not afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He is become my salvation. Notice that salvation is God. 
It is not what he gives necessarily. It is not what he does necessarily. It is God. It is Jesus Christ. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son hath not life. Salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, because of that, because Jesus is salvation, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall ye say, Praise the Lord, call upon His name, declare His doings among the people, make mention that His name is exalted, sing unto the Lord, for He hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, Thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. What's he doing? He's in the midst of the church. He's in the midst of you. He is in you. And with joy you shall draw water out of the wells of salvation. When you think of a well, you think of a parched place. You think of a dry and thirsty mouth. Have you ever been thirsty to the point where a glass of water satisfies you like nothing else? Isaiah is going to speak of this more than once in the book of Isaiah. That God is going to make rivers in dry places. What's he speaking about? What's the metaphor? What's the image? A dry, thirsty soul that's having its thirst quenched with a glass of water. But go beyond the image to the very God himself who's speaking. Who's saying, I am the God that comforts you. I am the God that satisfies you. I am the God that satisfies the longing of your soul. You see, the problem, as Elder Guest pointed out, is that we have replaced thirst-quenching water naturally with Kool-Aid, iced tea, soda. Now think about it. Water is not so satisfying when you take in all the sugar water, is it? Now I know this by experience. There was a time when a glass of water just was like, blah, I don't want any water. You know, when I got off the sugar water and started drinking the water, there was no, nothing more satisfying to me than a glass of water. I tried after a period of time to drink sugar water. By the way, I still drink the stuff, so I'm not trying to be pious here. I like it, I drink it, it's good. Okay, I've got taste buds too. But I did this little experiment, and I drank something, sugar, that sugar water, and I almost spit it out of my mouth. You know, Peter gives us an image of that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. He says, lay aside malice, anger, clamor, bitterness, evil speaking, and desire the sincere milk of the word. What spoils the appetite for God's word? What spoils the appetite for revival? Is it not all the things we put in to our mouth, so to speak, speaking naturally, into our soul? And then when the word of God is preached, as Elder Guest pointed out, it's like, <laughs> blah, common. It's not uncommon anymore. Set these things aside and you will find your soul revived again, rejoicing in God, being satisfied by the preaching of the gospel, being satisfied by the word of God, which is the way God has given us to know more of him and to grow in grace. He says, with joy I'll draw out water. Listen to David in Psalm 63. He says, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. David is on the run from Saul in the wilderness. He's speaking naturally about thirst, but he's pointing to a far greater thirst he has. Because he says, to see thy power and thy glory as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. He's longing to be back in the sanctuary where God was not common, but uncommon. Where God was high and lifted up his glory, his power, his holiness. And he says, I'm longing for it just like my mouth is longing for a drink of water from the wells of Bethlehem. And he says, because thy loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise thee. 
I shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. Now, beloved, here is a place in the Bible that you can get excited about being fat. <laughs> you know, people are always on about too fat, too fat, but the God says, delight yourself in fatness, Isaiah 55, and the second verse. I'm glad that's in there. But you see, he's not talking about something natural, is he? He's talking about getting fat with him, so to speak. Just taking him in, as, as Brother Isaac said, taking in the Word, taking in God, getting fat on God's Word. Now, David said it's longing, thirsting that is like seeking God early in the morning. You know, that speaks of value, doesn't it? The word means diligently, earnestly. But let's just take it for meaning early, as in early in the morning. I know some of you deer hunters here. I won't mention any names. You know that if you're going to kill a deer, you've got to get up early in the morning. I mean, you get up early, you've scouted the place, you've got the stand, it's there. You get up early because you want to catch the deer at the first break of daylight. So you're putting a value on that, aren't you? What about you fishermen? You know that to catch fish, they just don't bite in the middle of the night. Or in the middle of the day, in the heat, they, you need to catch them early. So you get up early, you hook up the boat, you go down, miles and miles, you'll drive to the nearest water hole where the fish are biting. You got the equipment, you got the depth finder, you got the boat, you got the magazines to tell you where to go. And you do all this, and you know, lo and behold, times you can't get up early in the morning. Man says, I'll be there at four o'clock in the morning, I'll not one time he knocks. I'm up! I'm ready to go. Now, you sisters out there saying, Yeah, those foolish men, they. Can't. The things they'll go after. But sisters, what about your favorite department store if they were having a sale 90% off of everything in the store? Here's the catch. The doors open at 4 and the sales open over at 6 a.m. You may go out here and say, well, you know, I, I, I'm not going to you. No, no. You get home, you start getting on the phone. I'll pick you up at 3.30 and I pity the man that unlocks that door. <laughs> What's happening? You're placing a value. on. Now, all of you will value something. But David says, early will I seek God. Would you get up early for God? Would you treat his word so uncommon? Because on my book it says, Holy Bible. And if that means uncommon, that means God expects us to treat this book, as Elder Guest said, unlike any other book that you own in your house. Do you spend more time in this book than every other book that you own? Now, I recognize there are times, if you're in school, you may have to study all day and you get in, didn't get a chance to read the Word. But is the undercurrent of your life such that you treat the uncommon Bible as the uncommon Bible? How does God want you to treat it that way? By taking it in, as Elder Guest has pointed out. With joy, we'll draw water out of the wells of salvation.